Hi there, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Do you have a homestead, farm, or just dream of a rural life? This is a show to help you and your kids grow your own food and grow as a person. I'm your host, Cody Hanner. I'm a homesteader, homeschool mama six, and small town enthusiast. I was raised by an old school rancher and blessed by the grace of God to have been exposed to so much of what rural life has to offer. Join me every week to talk about homesteading, homeschooling, and growth with a homestead education. Hi, everyone. I have Sam Ingersoll, the director of marketing from Kelowna Supernatural, an organic dairy brand that is known for being the closest thing to raw milk in many retail stores. Sam, I am so excited to have you on today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't you expand on what the closest thing to raw milk means? Sure. Uh, Kelowna Supernatural is a organic dairy company that's been around since 2004. Uh, We were started by a group of Amish farmers who were getting crushed in the milk market as it became more government regulated and corporate controlled. And they wanted to preserve their farms and be good stewards of the earth for generations. So they started a little creamery. Uh, Well, they weren't very technologically, technologically savvy and stuff. And, you know, doing things the natural way just made sense. So the milk they produced was not only organic but non-homogenized and pasteurized at the lowest temperature allowed by law. So that would be the, the, the first thing is that um, we try to keep milk as nature intended it to be as much as possible. We are sold in about 3000 stores across the country and, and in all 50 states our products are. And so of course we can't sell raw milk, which is illegal in Iowa. Um, but definitely we think that the way we process is as close as you can get to raw. Because the low temp pasteurization, the non-homogenization, and then we don't add any additives or stabilizers um, or uh, other junk whenever we can possibly help it. So this is a really enlightening topic for me, but for a lot of my listeners, they're just like coming into this raw milk concept. Mm-hmm. Do you want to kind of go into a little bit of what raw milk is and why it's such a hot topic? Yeah, I think I, I think on a couple on a couple fronts, you know, the organic movement came around came about in the 1960s, and there was this huge interest, this huge research, you know, huge interest in organic food. Um, and it was you know, I was called hippies, you know, back <laughs> to nature types. The hippies, my parents were part of that, right? Back to landers, you know. <laughs> uh huh. Um, and they, I grew they up in hippie them. country, so. <laughs> There you go. So they started that and it blew up. Well, I think there's been a real resurgence in the last, I would say in the last five years of of people who are very interested in both health and the environment kind of coming together around the idea. Again, it's not a new idea, um, but the idea, again, that whole food, raw food, naturally grown food um, in concert and in cooperation with nature is the best thing. Absolutely. Uh, I think I think COVID played a role in that. People viewing food as medicine. I think there's been a very, you know, on the sort of a liberal political side of the cultural spectrum. There's always been sort of an anti-corporate movement. On the conservative mm-hmm. side, there's been this anti-government movement, and both of these things have merged together. I'm not supposed to talk politics here, but both <laughs> these things have really. Merged I never said together. you couldn't. So, <laughs> <laughs> both these things have merged together into a really um, powerful recognition of, by people that. Um, uh, that nature's way is often the best. And we need to be a little humble about what we think about both in terms of sort of nutrition and environmental science, um, which is dovetailing personally perfectly with the regenerative movement that's now sort of starting up, I think. 
Absolutely. When we were kind of talking before we started recording, I was saying, you know, the homestead movement is almost a movement. It's, it's more so than choices. It's political and it's about our kids Mm -hmm. and our land. And I, I actually, I had another guy on the podcast recently that we were actually joking that like, there should be like, you know, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, and homesteaders. (laughs) Yeah. We're almost a whole nother group at this point. So, and I think that what you guys are doing definitely falls into that home, the modern homestead movement that's so big right now. I think, you know, even for, there are lots of, I'm going to say lots of affluent people who have kids um, who are, who have everything. I grew up uh, dirt poor, family of seven, mountains, Washington state, goats, chickens. You know, my dad was butchering goats out back. Um, I spent a lot of time in the, in the garden, the fields of central Illinois when we grew up. And I ran as far away from that as possible <laughs> as soon as I could go to college. Right. Um, but now that I've, you know, grown up, I'm fairly affluent. My kids, um, you know, my kids, my kids and lots of our friends, kids are in these affluent suburban, suburban communities where they're on their phones all the time, or they're pre-programmed into, um, club sports and things in a really intense competitive way. Uh, and we're seeing how, in some ways, how unhealthy that is. Absolutely. And so there's a real desire to do something different. Um, Back to slower living. Yep. Yep. Um, so, um, yeah. So I think that's that's sort of the cultural context that we find ourselves as we're discussing food. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, for a lot of my listeners, raw milk is not legal in every state. I'm yep. lucky enough to live in Idaho where I actually, it's legal and I have a seasonal raw milk dairy on my farm. Mm-hmm. I am a convert though. I you I used to work in food safety. A lot of my listeners know that. And I was anti-raw milk. I thought, what is wrong with these people that are feeding their children raw milk? Like, why? And then as I moved out of that, I, I thought, like, but people drink raw milk for generations. Mm-hmm. What was, you know, what changed their mind? And I mean, it turned out to be the baby formula industry in the early 1900s, but... I mean, people are starting to realize how important it is now. So mm-hmm. you guys have come up with a a loophole almost to this, uh, that raw for the people who want raw milk and can't get raw milk in their states for whatever reason. Yeah. And I would say, you know, um, you mentioned the the baby food industry and how they, they controlled things and shifted it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the, um, the government regulations around milk, um, I think can, it came out of California and I think, you know, responded to a couple cases, but um, I'm just going to say this when, you know, something happens, it's pretty easy for either um, government bureaucrats or media people to get on it. And if it bleeds, it leads and it creates, re- you know, regulatory impulses. Right. And next, you know, there's this huge overreaction. <clears throat> I think same way, you know, if you've read the book, Big Fat Surprise, I haven't, um, but it's going on my list now. <laughs> Big Fred's surprise will blow your mind about how, you know, the sort of cultural backlash against fat, you know, was 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 sort of a, a media narrative and driven by by some diet guy. Absolutely. Um, and that that sort of factors in. I mean, milk started to be homogenized. Uh, it came out of France where um, some some sleazy marketing guy, you know, and sales guy was like, how can I make it different to sell it to rich people? And so right. homogenizing it. And then so what, what's homogenization? Homogenization. Uh, when you have milk in its natural state, the cream rises to the top. And for hundreds and thousands of years, you would skim off the cream and you would turn it into butter. Um, and it was highly prized that way. Uh, homogenization is where 
And today it is the, the cream fat that would normally rise to the top is smashed under 2000 plus pounds of pressure. And it breaks up the fat globules into millions of pieces and disperses them throughout, throughout the milk. Um, and that was pitched in the, uh, when this hit the United States, um, it was pitched by a, a company that made that kind of machinery at food conferences as better and <laughs> as a way to, you know, make it better for, for baking. Uh, that was also paired with unscrupulous milk merchants who were like, this is great. If it's homogenized, we can scrim off the, the cream and tell people it's full fat and it won't be. And then we'll sell the butter on the side. You know, a lot of this, a lot of this stuff is economic, economically driven. I, everything is economically driven. <laughs> Food has always been very political. It, it absolutely has. I'm reading a book right now. I don't even remember the name of it. I should bring it up because I am absolutely loving it. And it's going really deep into that. It's, I haven't, I never read Kindle books, but this one, I was on the plane recently. So it was animal vegetable junk, a history of food. And I'm really enjoying it um, because it's going deeper into how it's all just, yeah, you said politically and economically driven mm-hmm. when it really needs to be health driven. Yep. And we just talked about homogenization and non-homogenization. So ours, ours is non-homogenized. All of our products mm. are non-homogenized from cottage cheese to milk. Uh, the other factor is pasteurization. And that was, again, uh, what some people would say was a, a government overreach to a few cases where people got sick. Uh, well, there's then- a difference between these inner city farm or dairies in the early 1900s that were just nasty and the animals living on top of themselves versus the milk that you're getting off family farms or even I mean and most dairies are coming from family farms like our creameries are getting their milk from family farms yeah and there's you know there's for your listeners there's a couple different ways to pasteurize milk uh many uh most most companies including some organic dairies have gone towards ultra high temp pasteurization and that's where milk is pretty much sterilized at 280 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, this they also tried this in France, funny, um, where they were trying to ultra ultra high temp pasteurize milk because it didn't require refrigeration. If you put it in antiseptic packaging, uh, what they found out is that nobody wanted to buy it because people <laughs> thought there was something wrong with it. Which, <laughs> you know, um, what's wrong with it is there's nothing left in it. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of our and lots of our customers, of course, feel that it breaks down the protein structures. Uh, your body can't recognize it as well. They can't digest it as well. And so folks are more lactose, you know, intolerant to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, can't, and, and it triggers allergies. They think all kinds of things. I can't as a brand like say those things because then we get whacked by whatever, you know, whatever people are watching us make right. health claims, you know. Um, uh, but so. In contrast to ultra high temp pasteurization, hashtag never UHT, uh, our milk is pasteurized at the lowest possible temperature allowed by law. So it's at 145 degrees. It's gently warmed up to that level and held for about 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes. uh, And then that's it. And we think, and most of our customers believe that it's just a better way to do it. It preserves the flavor. it It preserves the nutritional value. Um, and somebody was saying to me the other day, they think it, it, it contributes to weight loss versus high temp sterilized and, and homogenized milk. You know, I would believe something on those lines. I mean, the whole weight loss when you're 
you know, consuming dairy, which is high in fat. And I mean, I know that fat is not the complete enemy to weight loss, but when you're protecting your gut health and you're consuming a real product and not a lab created one, I mean, there's just, you're going to see better health, whether that goes to your gut health in good shape. So you have more energy. So you're working out more or something. I don't know, but I agree that there's something to that. The, the wild theory here here is, and it's you know not improved, and I'm not making this claim, <laughs> is that when you homogenize milk and you smash the fat particles up, you increase the surface area of the fat, which means that your body absorbs more fat. So the theory would be that homogenized milk is like eating a full stick of butter on your piece of toast, whereas you know uh, non-homogenized milk is more like the three pats that you would normally put on. So what you're talking about there is. You're the, you still have the fat that's carrying the nutrient value, but mm-hmm. you don't have the overage of fat that increases weight gain. That totally we'll makes sense. That's true. Well, yeah. There, well, that's a, that's the thing, right? There isn't there isn't a lot of corporate money to be made and to be invested in research on proving that natural things are better. We find that in the agriculture, you know, space too, with with farming practices. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, for your product being non-homogenized as a homemaker, that's really exciting because even during my seasonal times when I don't have raw milk, we buy milk from the store and I'm always bummed that I'm not making my own butters and cheeses and yogurt. So I guess I can make yogurt out of the non-high temp ones, but still it's not the same. And yeah. So it's really exciting as a homemaker to think that I could go to the store and buy, you know, basically a cream top milk, which, I mean, it's available here in Idaho, but in other states, it's not. Yeah. And we're, again, strange bedfellows, right? You have, you have homestead, homesteading movement folks Mm -hmm. uh, who are in Idaho, sometimes in what other people would think in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And then. Uh, you have famous chefs like Rick Bayless in Chicago who loves our food and he's making his mozzarella and his, all his Mexican food with our sour cream and, and whole milk. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. I, I really love seeing how it's kind of spreading back, which is, I think what a lot of us and our kind of niches are really wanting to do is to re-educate and then spread that out to the fringes yeah. or I guess if you talk politically, we're the fringes and we're trying to get it back to the mainstream. But I think mainstream. that I think that uh, rural people are the heart of our country and everybody else is on the fringes. So, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I've, I've lived in big cities and just big cities have a whole other dynamic than rural than rural America does. Um, and, you know, some of the some of the the, the folks who I have the most respect for are, folk, are, are immigrants and they land in big cities and they work their butts off. Mm-hmm. Kids go from, you know, they work in the restaurant industry. Their kids end up sort of, you know, middle management and then their grandkids end up doctors and lawyers and contributing just like everybody else. Uh, when I worked in when I worked in San Diego, we had a lot of um, it was just fa- this just a, a whole other fascinating topic. But we had we had immigrants who exemplified the American ideal more than a lot of, you know, 100% our, our hundred percent white kids who'd been around, you know, their families have been a long time. And I think the statistics bear that out. Um, immigrant, immigrant kids increase their social and economic mobility faster than, than generational Americans that have been here. Uh, and some of it's, you know, some of it's work ethic, some of it's cultural cohesion, 
In mm-hmm. San Diego, we used to, in the schools, we, there were 64 languages. And you would find, you would, you would want to kid, teach the kids English because then they integrate faster. Well, it was funny, the kids that integrated faster ended up doing worse than the kids that were educated in their own language because then they held together, co- they held together culturally and with their families. And as soon as they were broken off of that family structure and their values, they started being slackers, you know, and they'd get into gangs and corrupted and all kinds of other crazy stuff. Oh. So fascinating subject, you know? Yeah, I, I really, I, I grew up in a farm community where like 60% of our population was immigrant workers. So uh, mm-hmm. I definitely, I, I saw a little bit of what you're saying, but it was such a rural community. We, I mean, we had two languages in yeah. <laughs> not 64. Yeah. Or sometimes there's cultural reasons against it. So uh, some of the Mexican families I, I worked with, they didn't, they had never been to college. They, they, they lived in San Diego, five miles away from the beach and never been there. Uh, and while they had a real respect for teachers, you would never smart off to a teacher, the kind of stuff that we see in schools today, never do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they valued work. And so as soon as the kids in, you know, junior high, a lot of times they're off, they're off working. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, I even see that in our community, not necessarily from the ethnic, but the kids in our community work a lot younger and in yeah. more, adult jobs than they did where I grew up, even in a rural area. I grew up in California, but in a very rural community in Northern California on the coast, mm-hmm. uh, it was all wine and cows. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think, here, I think that's a good, I think that's good nowadays. I think, you know, uh, lots of, lots of, I think, you know, education is good and critical thinking is good. And, but, but as we've, as kids have descended into their phones and thumbing, I, they need to be, they need to be back working. I think it's very important nowadays. Right. All, this is where we're at. all of my teenagers have like legitimate jobs. Yeah. Not working at fast food places or something. One of them is an electrician's apprentice. He's 17. He started when he was 16. My 14 year old twins, one of them went down and got herself like first aid certified and everything and started a babysitting business. Like almost like doing in-home yeah. like nannying because she's homeschooled. So she can. Yeah. And then her her twin brother he actually um he raises and trains dairy heifers we have a brown, small brown swiss herd and those are his girls so when i grew up if we didn't if we didn't farm and grow the vegetables we didn't eat <laughs> right you know, we didn't we had money to venmo them 20 venmo me 20 bucks so i could buy starbucks you know right but, <laughs> i mean i luckily didn't grow up where we were like you know my dad was dirt floor poor from Tennessee when he was a kid. And he came out to California from Tennessee at 13. He hitchhiked and he got a job in shipyards. And by the time I came along, he owned shipyards in, oops, hit my mic. (laughs) I get to moving, you know, Um, he owned shipyards in San Diego, the Bay area and Portland. Wow. Yeah. So we had a huge ranch, but we didn't buy meat. We grew it. We grew most of our vegetables. It's just, it's what we did. It wasn't about a money thing. It was just life. And my dad, you know, on the weekends, he was a hunting guide. When he retired, he opened a hunting guide business. That was, we used to have this big party every year called the hog and frog feed. Oh, cool. And he would just invite everybody he knew up and we'd do a whole hog on a um, thing by the pool, whatever they are, the spinny things. I can't even think. (laughs) 
And um, I mean, he would serve all the weird things that he had hunted throughout the year. I mean, there was abalone and crab and uh, Rocky Mountain oysters and just everything, like frog legs. And of course, we had the pig. So and it was a blast. Like we would spend like the two months before Fourth of July. So we would sit at Fourth of July out frogging every night. It was like I loved going to dad's on during frogging season. So <laughs> way better than Roblox. Way better. And that's I actually had a realization. So I'm writing a book right now on raising self-sufficient kids. Uh-huh. And I was writing about that part of the five people that you spend the most time with. Yeah. And that they're the most influential on you. Yeah. Well, I realized that our kids are spending more time with an electronic than they are people. And I don't think that that electronic is being considered as one of the one of the five people that your kids are spending their time with. By the way, that's a that is a, that is a person that's you know there's been billions and billions of dollars spent to make it incredibly addictive. Uh, you know, and I shouldn't I shouldn't bash Roblox. Roblox, like when I was a kid, I used to draw maps on paper. Right, Roblox is its whole. There is a dynamic world building element to it. That's really oh yeah. Inside. The shoot 'em up games, not so in favor of those. Yeah, I mean, my my husband was in the army, so he loves the shoot 'em up games. <laughs> um, he doesn't even play on video games that much. It's we have a video game system, and I think it's like Christmas Day. They always bust it out. I don't know why it's Christmas Day, but and that's what they play, like hunting games, and they have like a farm game. It's so weird, but. I mean, it's it's not that weird because I actually, when I first wrote my curriculum, the very first one, I was sitting there like trying to think of like that gimmick that would s- suck the kids in and be excited to do uh-huh. their curriculum every day. And I'm like pestering my kids being like, what sounds exciting? What's on? They're like, I don't know. I don't know. As they're all laying on the floor with tablets playing Farmville. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I'm not doing that. So I actually, the the biggest piece to my younger kid curriculum is a two by three poster on the wall that they build their own farm as they do each task every day. Oh, cool. So they learn about a chicken and then they put a chicken in their farm and then they learn about what chickens eat. And then they find that in their kitchen. You know, they find a grain or quinoa or something and they put that in there with the chicken and it just kind of, they build by the end of it, they have a whole homestead. That is super cool. I think the the thread here is that no matter, you know, where you're from or your background or age or cultural shifts, et cetera, et cetera, there are some really important constant things, you know, being kind to other people, take caring, taking care of your environment, having a core set of, of values that you live your daily life by. Uh, I think that's pretty, pretty powerful for anybody, no matter where you are. And I think it's the thing that we really need in our, in our country. I think there's some really big missing pieces that happen. You know, I don't want to say it's public school. I don't want to say, or ex- I don't want to say because it's exclusively public school. I don't want to say if it's, it's exclusively social media or the news, yeah. but I think that there's this blanket issue of like dampening down, I guess, like self-sufficiency and that, you know, like you said, the character and it just, it needs to be brought back. And yeah. Yeah. I think it's fear. I think (laughs) fear, fear makes people money. Fear divides people. Fear gets people elected. Anger and hatred, great division gets people elected, sells more products, gets more eyeballs in news. And some of us are, are like really reacting to that and trying to do something, something positive in the world. Yeah. I think the kind of running theme is whatever they're doing, do the opposite. (laughs) 
it's probably just, you know, a good, a, a good rule of thumb. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking, you brought up um, a little bit of caring about our um, environment and stuff. Okay. And I noticed I was reading on your site before we came on that you, all your farm and you, then you mentioned the Amish farms all do regenerative farms and restore ecosystems. And I think that there's a really big misunderstanding in commercial agriculture that we, they, I say we, but we aren't just out there trying to destroy everything. So can we talk a little bit about what that looks like for a little bit more understanding? Yeah, I think, you know, our natural environment was built up over millions of years where, where animals, uh, plants, the soil, people, even the people that were there worked in harmony together. Uh, in Iowa, we had Indian nations that did that mm -hmm. and, and in what was, you know, what is now monoculture, you know, cornfields grown for ethanol purposes. Um, I lived in Iowa for a couple of years. <laughs> there you go. And you, it's beautiful until you know what's going on under the soil. Yeah. Um, uh, our Amish farmers, many of them have been here for uh, and have farmed the same land for 150 years and have used organic practices and regenerative practices like indigenous people far before there was ever a name or mm -hmm. some kind of thing to exploit. So uh, they've been, you know, they've been organic farming for a long time and, and using some kinds of regenerative stuff for a long time. I think what's happened is that, you know, there's been this, there's been this shift, this awareness of, of extreme climate change. Uh, the corporate guys have crunched their numbers, figured out that it's a, uh, there's a lot of risk. The risk managers and the insurance companies are all like, okay, desertification of the world, uh, uh, increased climate change, lots of people moving, you know, there's lots of risk here for big companies. So it sort of hit the corporate, the corporate level mm -hmm. now and the media level. Uh, and that's driving consumers to say, wait a minute. Okay. How are your, what are your farming practices? And I mean, so they, now they definitely like push it right time, up we're the just line. now going to make it obvious and talk about it more. But that's amazing. Um, what does regenerative farming look like over commercial or monoculture farming? That, that is a great question. And I think here's the way I think about it. Conventional agriculture generally means agricultural practices that destroy ecosystems. They destroy the environment. They destroy the biological functions of the soil. They do that through herbicides, pesticides, heavy tilling. And we can see that um, Obviously, we can see that in Iowa and across the Midwest, where every spring satellite imagery catches the release of, of billions and billions of tons of carbon um, just released from the soil. Talk about that more in a second. Uh, <laughs> in our area, in our area, the topsoil runoff, topsoil, you our one acre of farmland loses between one and nine tons of topsoil per acre. If you go out to Kansas or you look in Africa and you see where there's rains and the, the ground is cracked and then the rain hits and runs off. Uh, that has to do with a lot of the fact that there aren't, there isn't uh, a lot of soil organic matter in the topsoil. There aren't a lot of diverse kinds of plant species, which uh, have roots that have different kinds of functions for the soil. Some go deep, bring up minerals. Others go into the soil, decompose, create space for water. Uh, others have unique kinds of exchanges of minerals with the fungi that exist. Uh, so um, uh, that's that that is what uh, conventional agriculture is doing. It's spring soil. Organic mm -hmm. agriculture is at least not poisoning, right? You can't use herbicides or pesticides. No, Which, GMO. I mean, even with organic, we do see some of those same practices. Some of yeah, the same well, practices, yeah, they, all of them. there are some that are certified organic, but they still get around it. 
Mm-hmm. Regenerative is where you're sort of proactively, you know, proactively doing things to regenerate the soil, rebuild healthy plant biodiversity, create habitats for animals. So it rebounds in insects and birds and animals, um, which has a big impact on watersheds, on the cleanliness of the water, on the amount of water that's absorbed in the soil. And then final, finally, the ability to store carbon, carbon from the atmosphere. Um, just like plants pull down nitrogen, they pull down carbon. Carbon isn't bad. It's the basis of life on the planet. Mm-hmm. But we need to we need to use it the right way. Right. And I think that's a big, you know, just understanding or learning curve with it. Yeah. And I mean, it's so frustrating because we're even talking about what monoculture farms are or conventional farming is doing. Because there's even some conventional farming that's good. It's all just about who who's running it. I don't want to well, say good, but better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I don't, and I don't want to be, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bash people. Um, mm-hmm. Just like our conversation has touched on a lot of things, I think uh, we want to be, in, we want to be inclusive. And anybody who's trying to do the right thing, whether it's for the environment or trying to be, do the right thing with their health, uh, everybody like you who's contributing to to the debate, I'm not going to even agree with everything and everybody I hear online, but we're all moving the center, I think, to where we need to go in terms of our health and in terms of agriculture and in, in terms of taking care of our kids and families too. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate that. So whether it's a, a big farm or a small farm, you know, it's a company or, or, a, you know, or a small family like ours, um, or if it's, you know, there's a politician on the right or politician, on the right, whoever is moving, whoever's moving us this way is a real, is a real important ally for us, I think. Oh yeah. And you know, it's like I was saying, it's so frustrating because I see like in this book I'm reading right now, along with just other information I had already. I mean, it's like this running theme of like the Sumers in Mesopotamia, they fell because they destroyed their land. In Britain, they lost like half their population because of destroying the land. Um, One of the Mesoamericans, I can't remember which one, they fell once before the conquistadors came in because they ruined their land. And then we even look, um, you know, in the United States with the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Yeah. Like, when are people just going to, like, click and realize this isn't working and it's not going to work long term? That's right. And we can't we can't technology our way to a solution. No. Right. You can't develop bigger and bigger tractors and more and more synthetic inputs to heal the biological functions of the soil. Uh, nature's invented a perfect a perfect animal for healing the soil, and that would be you know the cow, the deer, the goat. <laughs> we already have it; it's here. It just needs to be used right. Mm-hmm. And I mean that just comes through like you know rotational grazing and crops, and yeah. you know using the you know legumes to get nitrogen back in, and just things that people don't do because it's all about that bottom dollar. And if yeah, think- you're ro- rotating and have an empty plot of land you're not making any money off of it at least that year but in future years you'll make more and that's it's just so frustrating somebody asked me they're like well how can you tell if the dairy farm that i drive by in iowa is using regenerative practices i say well it doesn't look like a golf course you're gonna <laughs> right. see all different kinds of levels of of plants and some of you may look like weeds yep because uh in most farms dairy farms or cattle ranches the the animals get to just graze everywhere they want. Meanwhile, they don't have a particularly powerful impact on the land. They're not fertilizing enough in concentration and they're overgrazing the plants that are there. 
That's not what the millions of bison and elk and deer used to do. They were herded differently. Mm -hmm. They were herded by predators, which existed at that time. There are no more left here. Uh, they were herded into maybe, maybe in Idaho, <laughs> not in Iowa. <laughs> you know, they were herded and bunched by the predators. And they would, they would poop on the ground. They would stomp it. They would break up the hard ground. They would, they would release moisture that, would, that had been fermented in their bellies. And then they would move off. And they wouldn't mm -hmm. come back until the ground and the plants fully had a chance to reheal. So on our dairy farms, we mimic those, that biological and ecological process with barbed wire, not predators, um, or not barbed wire, <laughs> but electric wire, not predators. Uh, and we, barbed wire. <laughs> we divide the pastures into smaller paddocks and then they're, they're bunched and then they, they're herded um, in, in, in what some people call rotation. We don't like to use that word because if you're just rotating on a schedule, six hours, 12 hours every day, every three days on a schedule, you're not doing what you need to do, which is look at the land and look at the regrowth of the plants. What you don't want to do is bring back that herd to that spot of ground until the grass or the plants there have had a chance to regrow. And it's fascinating. When you leave the ground alone, there are seeds and species that have been dormant for decades that then start regrowing uh we find this in Africa too. The Savory Institute sort of pioneered this, pioneered in modern times, uh, managed grazing or holistic management of farms. Uh, and it was just a real, I saw Alan Savory's TEDx talk. Somebody here told me, oh, we're saving the planet. Go to watch TEDx talk, Alan Savory. And I went and watched it. I was like, oh my gosh. Like in this, in this, you know, despair about the planet and our ability to produce enough food and what's going on all over the globe, like, there is hope here, and it has to do with uh, using animals to, to restore deserts and grasslands across the world. And then, of course, we apply it here. And when dairy farms grow more grass and grow more plants, surprise, the cows produce more milk and are healthier and have higher fertility rates, etc. What do so, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, it works out great. As somebody joked, like, you know, uh, a teaspoon of soil contains 9 billion organisms, and we only understand what, like, 100 of them do. Right. There's so much unexplored here, and we need to be a little humble about how we think our use of technology can somehow compete with with that. <laughs> I mean, we can destroy. It's easy to destroy things. Uh, creating yeah. the right kind of technology to rebuild and to rebuild what nature built up over millions of years with millions of animals and and these complex processes is is a little nuts. We don't need air scrubbers. We need more cows. Pretty correctly. <laughs> So before we have to wrap up, I'd love for you to tell everybody a little bit about more, more about your products and where they can be found. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's been a lovely discussion, but I always need to focus. Of and course. No, I, so like we were saying a, before, we could talk forever, but we have a, yeah. you know, my podcast is an hour long. So, <laughs> and there's a very serious point here. There are people doing the right things. And unless you, the listener, support those companies or support those farms or support your neighbors with your dollars, those people can't exist and do what they're going to do. So our farmers are heroes, but our customers are heroes mm -hmm. because uh, every day they can do something. Uh, we have 17 different products from milk, chocolate milk, 2%, whipping cream, buttermilk, yogurt, 100% grass-fed yogurt, uh, cottage cheese, sour cream, and all the milk for those comes from about 63 farms 
42 of those have just been Savory Institute land to market verified, which means we now have some data that our farms are improving ecosystem functions. It's not possible for everybody to, 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 to it's not possible for everybody to be certified that way. Right. And I want to make it clear, there are lots of small farms doing the right things who can't afford to get that certification. They aren't doesn't easy. Matter. Doesn't matter. If they're doing the right things, go support them, please. If you've got a farm down the street that, that sells milk, please go support them. Um, you, we love you if you buy our stuff, but <laughs> we need <laughs> we need our local rural economies to thrive and we want your neighbors and our family and friends to friends to survive. So uh, that's that's great. You can find our, our products in about 3000 stores. We just sort of got lucky. There's a whole other story behind this, but <laughs> most small creameries and small farms like ours don't get lucky enough to be found nationwide in stores like Whole Foods and Natural Grocers and, and Sprouts. So mm-hmm. And lots of independent co-ops. Um, That's amazing. We we're you know we're 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 actually supporting lots of small food entrepreneurs that want to bring their products to market, and we figured out how and figured out how to protect ourselves from you know billion dollar global corporations. So we're happy to share that. We're happy to share that information too. Oh, I love that. Um. So before we go, I like to ask all my listeners, or I'm sorry, all my guests what keep growing means to them. That's fascinating. I think on a, on a personal level, I, I fled my farming roots to become a junk food addict (laughs) (laughs) and and I'm finding my way back. So, and I've also been really inspired by the people who for decades have done this kind of work and the people who are, are part of the homesteading movement who are returning to the land and the environment in a really powerful way. Uh, those people inspire me. I try to work. I'm working on my personal journey that way myself. And then I think as a as a company, uh, as an organic dairy company that supports small family farms, we want to keep evolving and changing and challenging ourselves to do better. So we want to, it's hard. There are lots of economic pressures against us, but we are hanging on to non-homogenized milk, low temp pasteurization, not loading up with additives. You know, we're working with uh, lots of other farms and small producers wherever we can. We're trying to share our expertise to help other people who are in the minimally processed raw food, whole foods movement survive. So, uh, yeah, we we hope to keep growing and and appreciate your help um, in helping us do that, too. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing. Where can everybody find you guys online? We are at ColonaSupernatural.com and we have a very active Instagram presence you do i saw that so definitely head over there and let's see it's never hashtag never uht and hashtag almost raw that's right Make sure you guys are using that when you're using these awesome Kelowna products we are beyond organic love it thank you thank you thank you very much <laughs> if, if people get hit instagram right now i'll respond Awesome. That's great. I love it when people can reach out. So um, everybody make sure you check them out. If you find their products, give them a try. If you like kefir, we have a digital demo. If you go on our site, uh, we'll send you $7 worth of coupons and stuff. It's hundred percent grass fed. And look, the new land to market verification label. And we explain what it's all about on the back. Lots of people put certifications. Not every person, not every company puts what it means. Oh yeah. I have using our labels to educate people. We're excited about that too. Okay. I will link that and all of this in the show notes, guys. Sweet. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. 
Thank you for joining me today at the Homestead Education, and I hope that I have given you something to think about this week. To help others find me, please comment and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also follow me on Facebook at the Homestead Education and Instagram at Homestead underscore Education. Do you have questions that you would like answered or just want to say hi? Please email me at hello at the homesteadeducation.com. Until next time, keep growing!